Hi, everybody. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of uh, Luke, chapter 15. Man, when you turn to Luke 15, you know it's going to be a, it's going to be a day. It's going to be a sermon, Luke 15. Um, <clears throat> just so happy to be with you this morning. Something wrong here? Sorry. Is that not working? Hello, hello? Is that good? All right. I can go to that one if you need to. Just shout. All right. Um, So we're New Hope Community Church. And we want that not just to be our name. We want that to be our mission. We want to be a community that is defined by New Hope. Is that too tinny? All right. Let's let's go to this. Sorry. All right. How's that? That's better. I think so. All right. So we want to be New Hope Community Church. We want to, that to be not just our name. We want it to be our mission. We want to be a community that is defined by new hope. We want to be a church, a gathering, an assembly, a movement, defined by the good news that God is on our side. Have you ever heard it put that way? God is on your side. In my office, I have this little piece of paper that I intentionally put at eye level for anyone who walks out of my office that that the last thing that they see is this little quote that says, Everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or not. We live in a good world full of beauty and things worth fighting for. But you and I both know that this world is also full of darkness. It's broken. Turn on the news, walk down the street, and you see how dark it can be. In this day of advanced technology, I get uh, breaking news alerts on my phone. I have subscriptions to uh, the Baltimore Sun and the New York Times, and I get alerts all day long, and, and the truth is that those alerts are often reminders of why what I'm doing is so important. It's been said that there are only three problems in the world, sin, sorrow, and death. All the world's problems boil down to those three things, the fact that we hurt one another, the fact that there are things we can't fix, and the fact that death is inevitable. That's a downer. But the good news is that God is on our side. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn him, to, get, to, get, to, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And you might say, well, John 3.16, you're, you're, you're coming out of the gate with John 3.16, Joe. You've got to have to do better than that. We've heard it before. Well, there's a reason why it's the most quoted verse in the Bible. It's good news. It says that regardless of how dark the world is, God is on your side. 
He is rooting for you. You see, God is absolutely crazy in love with you. And he wants you to be in right relationship with him. Not just so that you can get square with him and go to heaven when you die, but so that you can be his instrument of justice and mercy and grace and peace to this broken world. The term eternal life in John 3.16 could also be translated the eternal kind of life or um, a life that is whole and lasting. Later on in John's gospel, Jesus says the thief, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. See, that's what Jesus is offering. That's what the church is offering. Abundant life, eternal life, life worth pursuing. The problem is that churches can often get so inwardly focused that they forget that they have been tasked to take this good news to the world. They forget that their primary responsibility is to make disciples who make disciples. The problem is that they can become a church for churched people. A club for the religious rather than fishers for people. This morning we're, we're finishing up our series Full Engagement, which is a series on the marks of the local church. If you ask us what does it mean to be involved in the life of the church, these are the things that we'd say. If you said, you know what, I just don't, I don't want to just be a, a member. I just don't want to fill out a form and be a member. I want to be a part of the life of the church. If you ask that, this is what we'd say. We'd say, what does it mean to be fully engaged in the life of the church? Well, we want you to be connected to a group. We want you to understand that principle that you can't grow spiritually without being connected relationally. We want you to serve on a team we want you to join a team and leverage your gifts to be a part of that mission. We want you to practice generosity and financially support the church that you love. And we want you to practice this, what we're going to talk about a little later, is this keystone habit of invest and invite. Invest in and invite others to, be, uh, to come experience our community. So this morning, we're going to talk about that last one, invest and invite. And we want to operate under the assumption that healthy things grow. And an important way we grow is inviting others to experience what we have. Think of like a, a band that you love. Like, I don't know, for me, the Beatles would probably be a good example of this. If I met somebody who had never heard the Beatles, it'd be like finding a unicorn, you know? It'd be like, well, you don't come across this every day. You haven't heard the Beatles? You've got to hear the Beatles. you just you got to hear what they have to say. You've got to hear this, this incredible quartet of musicians. Um, I can't believe you haven't heard it. it. I wonder if we could have that same attitude towards the church. You've never experienced the local church? The local church is the hope of the world. Come and experience what we have. Now, we can't talk about going wide without simultaneously talking about depth. Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples, not go and make Christians. My thesis is that you truly can't advocate depth without also advocating width. 
And you can't really advocate with without advocating depth. Our call as a community, as New Hope Community Church, is cultivating an environment of discipleship where all can grow and uh, closer to God and serve his kingdom agenda. You see, we can't do that well without depth. But today, I want us to look at a passage that's probably very familiar to you. If it's not, that's okay. But this passage might just challenge you to grow in kind of other ways. Turn with me to Luke 15. My house church is, uh, a couple of our house churches actually currently going through the book of Luke. And man, if you've never done the book of Luke with a group of people, I highly recommend it. So much wealth of knowledge here. Luke 15, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, him being Jesus, of course. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You see, the problem was that Jesus didn't want to be just seen being kind. He actually wanted to be kind. It's one thing to to be seen having mercy on someone below your station. Oh, look at him. Isn't he something special? The the Pharisees might have advocated that. The problem was that Jesus' fellowship with tax collectors and sinners, especially table fellowship, implied a desire for extended interpersonal association. He wanted to be friends with outsiders, and he wanted people to know it. Um, imagine if you're back in high school and, uh, you know, there's somebody walking down the hallway in front of you. Um, and maybe it's somebody that you don't typically hang out with. Maybe there's somebody who aren't part of the popular crowd or something like that. But their backpack, uh, like, the, like the zipper on the backpack somehow breaks and their books and everything in their backpack just goes everywhere. I mean, I've, I've seen this happen before. And if you're, if you're like kind of in close proximity to them, You'd have to look like a real jerk not to like at least help a little bit. You know, like usually like there's the one guy that comes by and goes, "Here's your book," you know, of the fifty that they, they dropped or something like that. But but at least you did something. There's a big difference between kind of being seen to do that because that's the social convention, and something else like if that same person was now invited to your house for a party, and other people show up and they go, "You invited them." Yeah, I invited them. I want them to be a part of what we have. I want extended interpersonal connection. The Pharisees would have been fine with social convention as long as it made them look good. The thing is, Jesus didn't want to just be seen eating with tax collectors and sinners. He wanted to eat with tax collectors and sinners. He wanted to be their friend. He actually cared for them. He wanted to invest in their lives and communicate the gospel good news of the kingdom. And he wanted others to witness him doing it, and then he wanted them to go and do likewise. The Pharisees and the scribes, they hadn't signed up for that. They just wanted to be the religious guy up front with a microphone. By having table fellowship with outsiders, Jesus is showing that um, those outsiders really weren't outsiders to begin with. Jesus was there because God so loved the world, even tax collectors and sinners, not to mention the Pharisees and the scribes. There's enough room for everybody at God's table. 
Continuing on in uh, verse 3. So we told him this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Or what woman, having lost, uh, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. And these two parables are the first of two, uh, first two of three parables that Jesus tells in response to the Pharisees grumbling about it. Each of these three stories involves something that is of great value that is lost. It is essential to remember that all of the sheep and all of the coins are of great value. The difference is that the one sheep and the one coin are lost. To say something is lost means that it, it has value and that you'd like it back. If I ask you where your high school diploma was, you might say, mm, I don't know, probably somewhere in a box. If I still have it at all, it might be downstairs. It's probably in the basement somewhere, right? I, I don't know. Well, is it lost? Well, no, it's not lost. I just... I'm not looking for it. I don't know where it is, but, you know, it's, it's just, it's there somewhere. It's not saying that having a high school diploma isn't important. Everybody should, you know, high school's great. But if I ask you the same question about your driver's license, where is your driver's license, and you didn't know where it was, that's lost. There are consequences to not having your driver's license. Oh, my goodness, I don't have my driver's license. I need to find that right now. If I don't find it, it's at least going to be inconvenience, if not worse, or something like that. When Jesus calls people lost... It is anything but a derogatory term. Back to Luke 15. So the ratio of the lost thing to other things that are currently safe and sound escalates with each story, right? The first one is about a shepherd who was responsible for a hundred sheep and then one wanders away. Even one uh, out of a hundred sheep would be worth searching for. So the shepherd, he leaves the 99 and goes in search of the lost sheep until it's found. And when he finds the sheep, he doesn't just tie a leash around its neck and drag him back. He puts it on his shoulders. He bears the burden of its weight. And he brings the sheep back into the fold and asks his friends to celebrate this recovery. Isn't that a great image for, for recovery organizations like, like AA and NA? But, but it's also a crucial image for the life of the church. Those Pharisees were supposed to have been the shepherds of Israel, and they had allowed their own corruption to see sheep after sheep wander away from the fold and then become other. And the next thing you know, rather than being brothers, 
they have now become society's labels, tax collectors, sinners. And Jesus says, I want them back. I want them to know that they have value. I want them to know that I love them. I want them to know that God is on their side. And I want them to be in right relationship with him. Get ready for it. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34. I uh, have fond memories of, uh, of our Ezekiel series years ago. It's been 12 years since we did that. Maybe we're due. So, not only is, um, uh, in Ezekiel, Ezekiel is prophesying against the shepherds of Israel, right? And he says, thus says the Lord, all shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? And it continues there in verse 11. I know it's small font. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them um, out from the peoples and will gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So not only is that a hopeful message for the lost, that God will seek them and find them, It's also a firm indictment of those who have been tasked with the role of shepherd and who have casually watched as sheep after sheep have wandered away. In Jesus' parable, he makes it crystal clear when he says, he makes this analogy crystal clear when he says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. See, Christianity, following Jesus, was never about making people more religious. It has always been about making dead people alive. But then Jesus cranks up the volume with the next story of a woman who had lost uh, one of ten silver coins. Uh, The term for silver coins is literally ten drachmas. Uh, A drachma was at about a day's wage. So this lost coin was the equivalent of ten days' wages. Uh, Lots of people in our day get paid every two weeks uh, for ten days of work, right? So when she said she lost a silver coin, it's kind of like saying she lost a whole paycheck. And that's not beyond the realm of possibility, right? Have Have you ever lost a paycheck? 
Um, if you have, you know that, that you wouldn't just kind of casually walk around the house and, you know, lift up the magazine to see if that's where you put it. No, you would turn that place upside down looking for that thing. That's rent. That's food. Even if you had wealth, which evidently this woman did, considering she had saved up ten coins, it, it's still a tenth of her wealth. If you make it a habit of losing coins haphazardly, you are eventually going to have a hard time paying bills, not to mention hard time helping those in need. Jesus is again drawing attention to the great value of this thing that was lost and again presses this analogy to make sure that this is crystal clear to those hearing him. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So the New Testament is clear that when something happens to God's glory on earth, there is a response in heaven. When a lost sheep or a lost coin is found, there is rejoicing in heaven. Because what else did you think heaven was about? Did you think heaven was about sitting on clouds and strumming harps? No, God desires that heaven and earth be one. Every time a sinner repents, that is a person who has gone from death to life. And that has cosmic implications. And Jesus is calling his church to follow his lead as the good shepherd who is going after lost sheep. But then, Jesus then raises the stakes significantly by telling a third parable. One that we all know very well, the prodigal son. And we won't spend time going through all of it today, but, but, but Jesus gives us this image where it's not just one of a hundred sheep or one of ten coins. It is one of two sons. I have two sons myself, and, and there have been a few times when I've lost them in a store for like just a moment or two. You know, I'm distracted by something. Uh, I look down and I, I realize that they're not by my side. And all of a sudden, my stomach cringes and my heart skips a beat. I'm suddenly on alert. And I don't care about social conventions, about using the inside voice. I don't care that I typically, uh, don't you know, typically approach stranger. I do whatever it takes to find James or Henry. And like the father in Jesus' tale, when I found my son, there is much rejoicing. There had been a big fight, apparently, and the son had left his father's home. Inheritance was given after death, for the son to ask for his father's inheritance was essentially saying, you're dead to me. He goes off and he squanders his inheritance on reckless living, and then he decides to come crawling back. And on the way, he rehearses this speech about how he was wrong and about how he had sinned. And before he even gets a chance to get all of the words out of his mouth, his father says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. I mean, that's probably one of the most preached on texts in the Bible. I'm sure if you've all heard lots of sermons on it. I, I think that, that one of my favorite lines in that tale 
is the detail that, that while the son was on his way back home, as he's, he's rehearsing this speech and, and he's, that he's going to give to his dad, the, the father sees him while he was still a long way off. Father was looking for him. And when he came back, for that moment, it didn't matter what he did. It only mattered that he was home. Were there consequences for his actions? And was the next morning awkward? Sure. Actions have consequences. But the thing that deserves celebration then and there was the fact that this son who was once dead is now alive. This person of undefinable value, indefinable value, was once lost and is now found. And if, it wasn't, if that wasn't enough, Jesus then raises the stakes... By drawing attention to the other brother, the one who had never left, and the father came out to see him and, and turned out that he was, he was angry. The dad was throwing this party for his brother who had casually you know, caused the family pain. But the father, he looks at him and he says, Son, don't you know, didn't you realize, everything I have has always been yours. But it's fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother who was dead is alive he was lost, and now he's found. The other brother, he's out grumping in the backyard. But the only thing that matters right then and there is that this son, who's once lost, he was dead, and now he's found. Now he's alive. There's a, um, a story analogy I, I, I heard this past week when I was studying this passage. Uh, let's say um, we all decide to go camping. We should do that sometime. You know, we go to rent uh, like a whole bunch of block of spaces at like Rocky Gap or something and we spend a weekend there and maybe we have big bonfires and maybe we have service on Sunday morning at a campsite or something. That might be fun. Anyway, let's say we did that. And uh, Saturday night, we have this big bonfire and everybody's having a good time and uh, they're laughing and we're eating food and all that and things start settling down. And all of a sudden, um, people start going back into their camp sites they start going back into their tents and they start settling down and all then all of a sudden you start hearing someone yell for their son and somebody says I, I can't find my son and everybody starts you know getting alert oh my goodness we, we have to help this person find their son no what we would do I'm sure is immediately start looking for this lost son but Let's say we didn't. Let's say, well, you know what we need to do is get a good night's sleep. We need to wake up tomorrow morning. We need to eat some scrambled eggs and bacon. We need to get some coffee in us. And then we need to sit down. We need to gather around this campfire, and we need to talk about the best way of searching for people. Let's read the best philosophy out there on searching. Uh, let's become good searchers. And then let's, uh, let's meet a little bit more, and then maybe we'll have lunch, and then maybe we'll think about, about when we're going to go out and look for this person. And the whole time the father's like, no, 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 my son is lost. Don't you understand? We don't have time to be sitting around talking about this. This son is lost. With these three parables, Jesus is saying, look, religious people, the reason why I spend time eating with tax collectors and sinners is because my father sees them and is looking for them, even though they may be a long way off. 
And I'm calling you to help me keep the lights on and celebrate when this human being created in my image who was once dead is now alive. This one who was once lost and of great value to me is returned. I'm not asking you just to join the party. I'm asking you to join the search. The local church that reflects the heart of the Father is the local church which is organized and strategized around the heart of the Father who is looking for lost sons and daughters, even the ones who are a long way off. The local church that forgets that they are called to be a part of that mission becomes just a group of people who are all gathering together, talking about searching, and then never actually do any searching. The question for us as New Hope Community Church is, are we joining our Heavenly Father in the search for lost sons and daughters? We're going to take communion in a few minutes. And after we do that, we're going to sing this song called Reckless Love. I like the song. The chorus of the song says, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending Reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give your, yourself away. Over, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It's a great tune, and I love it when we sing it. But, but I want to challenge each and every one of us to think that maybe we could mentally replace the word God with the word the church. I mean, we're Jesus' church. Don't get me wrong. None of this can happen without him. He calls us to live, though, in him, in his mission, in his love, and he asks us to join the search for his invaluable lost sons and daughters. So, what if the people we encountered on a daily basis, the people in our community, the people in our city, the people we work with, the people in our extended family sang of the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of you, of me, of us? What if they sang of the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of the church? Do we want to be a church that chases down the lost fights to their found, leaves the 99, not because they deserve it. You and I didn't either. God's love is not contingent on our character. It is contingent on his. I love uh, Bob Goff who says, we're invited because we're loved, not because we've earned it. But our call is to receive that love and then invite others to the Lord's, to the Lord's table on behalf of God himself. Jesus told his disciples that the world would know that they belong to him because of the love they show one another. And he said, as I have loved you, you should go love others. I mean, what if we had such passion for the love of God that the church was considered to be an essential part of the community? What if others in the community, you know, they said, you know what, I, I don't know if I believe what they believe, but I sure am glad they're here. What if we were so laser-focused on the gospel that, that the community, the, the, the community seen inside of us, they were envious of how well we treated each other and amazed at how well we treat them. And they said, I, I don't know if I believe what they believe, but gosh, I'm glad they're here. 
What if the gospel we proclaimed was so crystal clear to lost people that they wanted it to be true even before they believed it? May we never forget that we are keepers, church, of good news. When we forget that, we are called to a mission for, of searching for the lost. We don't just fail at being wide. We have missed an outrageously large part of the plot. And that is anything but deep. The church that is deep and wide is called to be the epicenter of love, acceptance, grace, mercy, justice, and forgiveness in a society. Now, does that mean I'm advocating street evangelism? Maybe. I think some of us, probably more of us, are called to it than perhaps we live into, but that's between you and God. But I want to leave you today with something that I believe everyone is called to do on some level. I mentioned before that a lot of this series was inspired um, by the work of North Point Community Church uh, down in Atlanta. And their, their pastor, Andy Stanley, he talks about uh, uh, these keystone habits that I mentioned before. Uh, keystone habits are written about um, by a guy named Charles Duhigg, who wrote a book called The Power of Habit. If you haven't read it, it's very good. Um, and a keystone habit is a habit that is so powerful, it affects everything. It's a habit that when you practice it, it has a, the, the effect kind of just cast a, cascades down into other areas of your life. For example, making your bed each morning is a keystone habit because it decreases the likelihood that you'll get back in after you've gotten up. Duhigg says, making your bed every morning is correlated with better productivity, a greater sense of well-being, and stronger skills at sticking with a budget. Or a family could have a keystone habit of eating dinner at a table four or five nights a week. Studies show that families who prioritize eating together see better communication, better grades, better relationships, better marriages, better finances, etc., etc. It's not magic. It's just that sometimes you can identify one habit that influences other areas of your life. And the church needs to have keystone habits as well. For instance, we should never meet house church or church without praying in some way not because we want to be legalistic about it but because praying helps us stay focused on God and then encourages the meeting to move in his direction and a keystone habit for reaching the lost is the fourth mark of being fully engaged in the church and that's what we'll call invest and invite it's pretty simple love others invite them to church but remember what we said about Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. We're not inviting folks to church because they're projects. We're not inviting folks to church because of their numbers. We don't want our church to grow because we want to be Baltimore's next megachurch. We want Jesus' church to grow because he cares about lost men and women, lost people, lost students, lost children being found. I found that the most powerful invitations are the simplest. Do you know when the best Sunday is to invite someone to church? Hmm? This Sunday. The best Sunday to invite somebody to church is this Sunday. Sometimes people are on the fence about this church stuff, and they just need a little bit of encouragement. It's something so powerful with that just a little phrase like, you should come to church with me this Sunday. Or... Come sit with me at church this Sunday. 
You know, think about, um, or, or maybe even like, can I pick you up for church this Sunday? Think about all of the barriers that, that somebody has before they come and visit a church. You know, the parking lot, or there's the, what building am I in? Or what part of town is this in? Um, or am I walking into the right uh, entrance? Uh, oh, where do I sit? What, what happens when, when the, oh, they're playing music now? What, what are they doing now? And now they're praying, and that's kind of odd. I'm not really sure what to do with that. How many barriers could you break down by having a person right by your side and says, don't worry about anything. You know, do whatever you'd like. You're fine. You're with me. And maybe they could just do what you do. But, but the point is that looking for habits to invest in another human being and inviting them to the Lord's table is an essential part of what it, be, it, what it means to be the church. If we don't have that, don't tell me you want to be deep. Don't tell me you want a, a, a deeper life and a deeper, more mature relationship with Christ because you have missed the plot outrageously. On the cover of your bulletin, is uh, this image of a garden. And again, there's this, this principle that healthy things grow. Um, and I think that when we invest and invite, when we practice this keystone habit of investing and inviting, it is going to have a direct impact on how we group, on how we serve, and on how we give. When we are always into the habit of inviting people into the Lord's table and making disciples who make disciples who make disciples, we are living in to what it means to fulfill the Great Commission. So we're going to have um, communion now. And I, when you come forward, I just ask you to, to consider maybe bringing somebody else with you on your heart. Not actually, but... Who is it? Think about it. Who is it right now when I say lost? Who is it that comes to mind? Who is it that, 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 that God has placed on your heart to say, yeah, I think they're far from God? And maybe, maybe you're wrong. <laughs> maybe they really aren't far from God. But maybe you need to go and, and meet with them and just have that conversation. Invest with them. Invest in them. And yeah, we want you to invite your friends to church. It's something maybe we don't talk about as often as we should, but yeah, we want you to invite your friends into our community so that they can be the church, so that we can be the church fully engaged. So <clears throat> we'll take communion in a minute. Um, uh, the, the red is uh, wine, the white is grape juice, um, and uh, there's also gluten-free crackers if uh, you're so inclined. Um, and uh, I'll just add, as I always do, that, uh, sacrament, or that the communion is one of two sacraments that Jesus instituted, uh, the other being baptism. While we say that communion sustains our faith, we also say that baptism proclaims it. It's, the, it's, a, it's a mark of the proclamation that you belong to Jesus. So if you find yourself coming forward for communion and you haven't been baptized, that's okay. But I ask you to consider coming to me afterwards and talking about um, what it would mean to make a public declaration of your faith through baptism. Um, but before we do that, would you please stand and read as churches throughout the centuries have done in the reading of the Nicene Creed.